calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Pride, everybody. This is the first full-length episode celebrating Pride Month this month here on the show. I am so very excited. But because we are celebrating Pride Month again this year, I want to remind all of you to please send in your coming out stories to the show for the last episode in June. So if all of you could have your stories in by June 23rd, I'll just say that right off the bat so you can remember. But I would really, really encourage anyone who wants to send in part of their story, all of their story, whatever, I really do encourage you to be a part of the episode. It really is such a, it sounds so cheesy, but almost like community building experience in a way. It's always been very cathartic and very, very beautiful. It's, I can't say enough how much it's like my favorite episode every single year. And I also wanted to encourage anyone who's sent in stories in the past, but maybe you have more to add. I am really part of the belief that, you know, coming out is very much a, it's an evolving journey rather than just one quick decision and destination. So if you've sent in something before, but you still want to share more of your experience 
I would be more than happy to share that on the show again as well. I haven't gotten many stories yet, but it is still the beginning of the month, but I'm so excited to see them start to come in. So please don't be shy. Go ahead and email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. And just a reminder, if you do want to remain anonymous, that is completely okay. I take your health, well-being, and safety very, very seriously. So even if you say you want to be anonymous, and I realize that there's maybe some details in your story that could be indicators as to who you are or where you live or anything like that, I'm very protective and make sure that any of you who really want to remain anonymous can do so. You can also just go by your first name or your first letter of your name or anything like that. The most important thing is having a space to be able to share your story and to receive a lot of love in response. Also in gay news on the show, this month, the book that I am covering on Patreon is called Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson. I'm not quite through the book yet. It's taken me some time. I've been really busy lately, but I'm really, really enjoying it so far. It is a little bit of a different book than I'm used to, but I'm really, really enjoying the story. I love the fact that it is somewhat based on a true story. That's always, you know, if you can't tell something that is very exciting for me or fascinating for me. So if you want to join the Angry Feminist Book Club, I would definitely recommend that you do so, especially now that we have such a backlog of episodes. I have already covered three books, and each of those books has two episodes related to them. So when you go to patreon.com slash angryneighborhoodfeminist, you will see all of those episodes there. You can join the Angry Feminist Book Club for $5. And if you want to spend $8 a month, you will be part of the Feminist Faves Club. And that means that you have both access to the book club and to these episodes ad-free. Sometimes I give them to you a little bit early when I finish them early, things like that. It's also just a really, really wonderful way for you to be able to support me and support the show in another way so I can continue to create content for you all. All right, I think that's all the housekeeping stuff that I can think of for now. I've been talking about this subject a lot recently, hinting that this is what I'm going to be covering, and it's something I feel like I've mentioned periodically throughout the years whenever Keegan and I would discuss you know, gay history and things like that. And whenever we would discuss gay history and anything in Pride Month, I feel like I would bring up sodomy laws a lot. And I do want to thank a fellow podcaster who I've never met by the name of Patrick Hines, who who is one of the hosts of the show that I am the most obsessed with in the world, which is called True Crime Obsessed. Ironic, I know. But they are also very knowledgeable about LGBTQIA history. They are a gay man themselves. They've worked on like a lot of books and just very, very knowledgeable on the subject. And whenever sodomy laws are brought up in any sort of like true crime aspect, he will always interject and make sure that it's known how sodomy laws directly affected the LGBTQIA community throughout history more than it did for heterosexuals. And because he's mentioned it so often, and because I've listened to each of those episodes a hundred times, that's what I fall asleep to now, it really has been ingrained in my mind to be able to look at those laws differently. And I wanted to learn more about the history of these laws, how they affected the LGBTQ community throughout history, and how it still affects them today as well. 
The earliest law regarding male-on-male intercourse was in 1075 BC, when the Middle Assyrian Code stated that if a man has intercourse with his brother-in-arms, they will castrate him. After that, most of the sodomy laws seem to have been created along with the growth of Western civilization and Christianity. In the year 390, Emperor Theodosius ordered that male prostitutes be publicly burned. Now, they don't specify if they're just burned, like burned a little with candle wax, or burned to death, but one can only assume. Starting in the 1200s, the Roman Catholic Church began launching a massive campaign against homosexual activity. This major shift occurred in the years 1250 and 1300, and many of these sex acts were punishable by death. In England, King Henry VIII enacted the Buggery Act of 1533, which sounds fun, but it's not. The Brits often have such nicer names for things than Americans, like I much prefer buggery to sodomy. This defined the act of buggery as abominable and detestable crime against nature. This phrase, crime against nature, would be used time and time again in relation to why homosexuality should be illegal, as the word buggery and the phrase became one and the same. During the 1600s, the American colonies adopted sodomy, or buggery, laws that prohibited bestiality as well as anal sex between any of the sexes. Punishment in this time was death, but, however, the laws were very rarely enforced. Historians actually know of fewer than 10 executions for sodomy throughout the century, and of those few, almost all of them involved bestiality, not gay sex. Professor Colin Talley argues that when the laws were first written in colonial America in the 17th century, the laws were not enforced as male-to-male eroticism did not threaten the social structure or change the gender division of labor or patriarchal ownership of wealth. In the book Dishonorable Passions by William Eskridge, they offered the first comprehensive history on sodomy laws in America. The text was actually used in a court case that is hailed as being the most monumental in striking down the country's sodomy laws, which I will further explore later in the episode. According to Eskridge, sodomy is not about homosexuality at all. Rather, it is about sex without procreative possibility, at least in the beginning. In his opinion, these laws were not written to ward off homosexuality because, well, there was no such knowledge of it at the time. We as people did not grasp the concept quite yet that there was a type of person who was attracted to and wanted to be intimate with the same sex. This idea wasn't common until the 19th century. Of course, gay people have always existed, but the community as a whole was so closeted that it wasn't discussed broadly. However, though the laws did not specifically go after homosexuality, these laws were created to regulate sexual behavior more generally by steering sexuality toward procreative marriage. We got a new country, we gotta make some babies to populate. However, since the laws were not strictly enforced, we do have some hints of early homosexual relationships in the creation of this country. There were gay men on General Washington's staff and among the leaders of the new nation, even though in Virginia, where Washington lived at the time, they held the penalty of death for sodomy. Washington hired a man by the name of Baron Frederick von Steuben, let's just call him Baron for the rest of this, who was a Prussian military man to whip his army into shape during the Revolutionary War. He was hired because he was known for his bravery, strict discipline, and grit, and was recommended to Washington by Benjamin Franklin. He is remembered as being responsible for creating America's first professional running army. 
When recommending Baron to the general, Ben Franklin played up his friend's prowess on the battlefield and decided to leave out many of the rumors that had been spreading about Baron being dismissed from the Prussian military for being gay. However, neither Franklin nor Washington say Barron's rumored sexuality as being a hindrance on his abilities that they needed to win the war. Washington then assigned Alexander Hamilton and John Lawrence to be his aides, which is interesting, as it has been long rumored that Hamilton and Lawrence themselves had a romantic relationship. And I want to know why this whole little thing hasn't been turned into a Hamilton spinoff. Come on. Barron also didn't seem to be going out of his way to hide his attractions. He would throw sexually charged parties at Valley Forge. A note from one of his diary entries reads, His aides invited a number of young officers to dine at our quarters on the condition that none should be admitted that had on a whole pair of breeches. So, guests came in torn clothing or none at all. It doesn't seem like there were any women around to be invited either. Historians believe that during the war, Barron may have formed a relationship with both William North and Benjamin Walker, who were aides to camp, who also appear to have been in a relationship with one another. Barron, William, and Benjamin lived together on camp for two years, and when the war was over, Barron got his U.S. citizenship and moved to New York with the men. Barron then adopted both men, which was a common practice among gay couples at the time, to be legally bound together since legal marriage was obviously not going to happen, and the trio lived together until Barron's death in 1794. William North once wrote of Barron, We love him, and he deserved it and loves us tenderly. William even named two of his six children after Barron. One is named Frederick William Steuben North, and the other William Augustus Steuben North. I wonder how his wife, Mary Duane, felt about this. Along with William and Benjamin, it seems that Barron also had an intimate relationship with a man named John Mulligan, who served as his secretary. When Barron passed away, Mulligan also inherited some of Barron's money in his library. William divided the property he inherited from Barron among his military companions. And as for William and Benjamin, they remained close until their deaths, and Benjamin was named as a sponsor of William's daughter, Adelia, at her baptism, which I guess made him the godfather. By the time we get to the 18th century, it is even less likely that the police will enforce sodomy laws. There's only one known capital case at this time, and it was regarding an enslaved man by the name of Mingo, who was charged with forcible buggery. There is little information regarding this case, except for some diary entries from Samuel Sewall from 1792, where he speaks of trying the case. Mingo was executed for his crime. All throughout history, immigrants and men of color were the most commonly charged with the crime. The pattern of ignoring the violations of these laws began to turn in 1880. Loosening morals and new patterns of urban sociability scared legal officials into expanding sodomy laws to include fellatio, giving oral sex to a biological man, which most states agreed to by the roaring 1920s. The thinking is, if more kinds of behavior could be considered sodomy, more people could be vulnerable under the new law. Both women and men began being prosecuted for fellatio, and a few states also included cunnilingus, too. How dare you take that from women? We probably got it even more rarely back then. Sodomy arrests in these years increased tenfold, but compared to what was to come, the policing of sodomy laws was still relatively lax compared to other sexual offenses like adultery, fornication, prostitution, and rape. Also, it's important to note, 
that most of the sodomy arrests until the mid-20th century were regarding rape or assault. When Alfred Kinsey's findings on sexuality were released in 1948, Americans began to see how many of us were technically lawbreakers, which changed many of the perceptions of the laws against things like oral sex. But it also brought up the question of privacy and freedom in the minds of many of the early gay activists, who saw the potential of these sodomy laws to grow a closer focus onto them. Now I want to talk about some early cases which helped guide us into the more monumental ones that would help change these laws. Constitutional challenges to sodomy laws were not uncommon in the 1950s and 60s. Most were aimed with the crime against nature angle that was typically argued with these laws. Unfortunately, none of the early challenges in the 50s made any change whatsoever. As of 1960, every state had an anti-sodomy law. In 1961, the American Law Institute's Model Penal Code advocated for the repeal of sodomy laws as they applied to private adult consensual behavior. We've talked a lot about the right to privacy and a lot of those other legal cases that have been involved in that because privacy laws are also included when we talk about things like abortion and contraception, as well as, you know, things like personal relationships and sex and things like that. It all very much is tied together. Illinois became the first state to get rid of its sodomy law that year in 1961. In 1963, the ACLU took its first major opposition to these laws. In the case of Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965, the Supreme Court recognized that married couples at least had the right to privacy. Now, this doesn't seem like it would do much for the gay community at the time, since they were not allowed to legally marry, but it was a step toward privacy laws that would help the cause down the road. Eisenstadt v. Baird in 1972 expanded the scope of sexual privacy rights to unmarried people. And of course, in 1973, Roe v. Wade extended the right to privacy to protect a person's right to have an abortion. The 70s as a whole was a major time of upheaval for the gay community being targeted for sodomy charges. The aftermath of the Stonewall riots and the burgeoning gay rights movement became a reason as well as an obstacle for sodomy law reform. The cause for changing sodomy laws then became a major interest to the LGBTQ community. The first big challenge to a sodomy law occurred in 1976 with the U.S. Supreme Court case of Doe v. Commonwealth Attorney of Richmond. This case challenged the sodomy law in Virginia as a violation of the right to privacy. The case eventually was unsuccessful, and in the negative decision from the three-judge panel, they wrote, If a state determines that punishment, therefore, even when committed in the home, is appropriate in the promotion of morality and decency, it is not for the courts to say that the state is not free to do so. This sounds like it would have been a more relevant argument in a child abuse case, not a case about two consenting adults. The dissenting judge, Robert R. Marriage... Marriage? I have no idea how to say this person's name. Junior agrees with me and wrote... A mature individual's choice of an adult sexual partner in the privacy of his or her home would appear to me to be a decision of utmost private and intimate concern. Should the state be able to regulate our morality? When does it become a question of legal treatment rather than the question of moral behavior? The next big case to make a dent in the sodomy laws was Bowers v. Hardwick. Many thought Bowers would be the case. 
In early July of 1982, the Atlanta Police Department issued Michael Hardwick a citation for public drinking after witnessing him throw a beer bottle into a trash can outside of a gay bar where he worked. Due to a clerical error on the citation issued by the officer, Hardwick missed his court date, which then led to a warrant for his arrest. And then it just gets messier. To make the matter go away, Hardwick paid a $50 fine to the court, but nevertheless, the initial officer that charged him still showed up at his home three weeks later to conduct a now invalid warrant. Officer Torek entered Hardwick's home at around 8.30 a.m. There was a house guest sleeping on the couch who took the officer to Hardwick's room. When they opened the door, Hardwick was engaging in sex with another man. Rightfully so, Hardwick got mad and threatened to have Torek fired for entering his house. Torek later said that he never would have made the case if Hardwick hadn't had an attitude problem. An attitude problem? You were carrying out an illegal warrant. You had no right to be in his home. I would have had a bit of an attitude problem too if someone did that to me. Not to mention scared out of my damn mind. Torek then arrested both men for sodomy, a felony under Georgia law, which carried a sentence of 1 to 20 years in prison. This is especially shocking when you consider that there had been no prosecution for consensual sodomy in Georgia for more than 50 years prior. Thankfully, D.A. Lewis Slatton chose not to prosecute the sodomy charge. For one, the warrant had expired. And secondly, Slatton did not believe that the sodomy law should be used to prosecute consensual sexual activity. Thank you. Hardwick himself held the belief that because he was a sexually active gay man, that he was liable to eventually be prosecuted for his activities. So, he sued the Attorney General of Georgia, Michael Bowers, in federal court for a declamatory judgment that the state sodomy law was invalid. The ACLU saw this as the perfect case that they had been looking for to challenge anti-sodomy laws, so they approached Hardwick about working together. The case was initially dismissed in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia, with the court in favor of Bowers. Then, upon the appeal with the 11th Circuit, the decision was then reversed, finding that the Georgia sodomy statute was an infringement upon Hardwick's constitutional rights. Then, the state of Georgia appealed, and the Supreme Court agreed to review the case by November of 1985. This is a show, a teeter-totter of a case. Finally, the Supreme Court issued a 5-4 ruling upholding sodomy laws. Since the case of Griswold v. Connecticut, the court had held that a right to privacy was implicit in the due process clauses of the 14th Amendment. However, in Bowers, the court held that this right did not extend to private consensual sexual conduct, at least as long as it involved homosexual sex. In the opinion written by Justice Byron White, they posed the question as to whether the Constitution confers a fundamental right upon homosexuals to engage in sodomy. Well, I bet it doesn't state that exactly. They answered negative to the question, stating that to claim that a right to engage in such conduct is, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history or tradition or implicit in the concept of ordered liberty, end quote, at best facetious. He continues, And if respondent submission is limited to the voluntary sexual conduct between consenting adults, it would be difficult, except by fiat, to limit the claimed right to homosexual conduct while leaving exposed to prosecution, adultery, incest, and other sexual crimes, even though they are committed in the home. We are unwilling to start down that road. 
Now, why are we lumping homosexuality with incest and adultery? Oh, because we've been doing that always. In the opinion, Chief Justice Warren E. Berger mentioned the historically negative attitudes toward gay sex, quoting the incredibly bigoted Sir William Blackstone's definition of sodomy as a crime not fit to be named and an offense of deeper malignity than rape. Berger concluded to hold that the act of homosexual sodomy is somehow protected as a fundamental right would be to cast aside a millennia of moral teaching. Slime, muck, boo, boo, boo. Justice Lewis F. Powell initially wanted to strike down the law, but was swayed by his conservative clerk, Michael W. Mossman, who advised him to uphold the ban. In 1990, Powell told a group of New York University law students that he considered his opinion in Bowers as an error. He said, I do not think it was inconsistent in a general way with Roe. When I had the opportunity to reread the opinions a few months later, I thought the dissent had the better of the arguments. At the same time, he said that he believed the case was, quote, of little importance and said he had not devoted 30 minutes to think about the case since the ruling. Well, clearly you have if you've changed your mind. Thankfully, there were those who dissented. Justice Harry Blackman attacked the majority opinion as having an almost obsessive focus on homosexual activity. He wrote, Only the most willful blindness could obscure the fact that sexual intimacy is a sensitive key relationship of human existence, central to family life, community, welfare, and the development of human personality. Funnily enough, he actually took this from his colleague Justice Berger's opinion in which he said that obscene films were not constitutionally protected. Blackman revealed in 1995 that part of his reason for his dissent was primarily because of his clerk, Pamela S. Carlin, who was a lesbian. He said, Carlin did a lot of very effective writing, and I owe a lot to her and her ability in getting this dissent out. She felt very strongly about it, and I think is correct in her approach to it. I think the dissent is correct. Warren Berger's homophobia was absolutely rampant, though. He even attempted to convince Justice Byron to include overtly homophobic language in the majority, which thankfully White refused to do. Berger also once wrote a note to his colleague Justice Powell comparing gay people to Jack the Ripper. The Georgia law upheld in this case criminalized oral sex and anal sex, whether engaged in by people of the same or different sexes. As for Michael Hardwick himself, he passed away in 1991 of complications from AIDS. According to his lawyer, Kathleen Wilde, he died very bitter about the outcome of his case. However, Bowers revolutionized the culture at law schools, introducing what was called gay law into curriculums and creating an environment where law school faculty began to feel that they could come out. In 1998, there was the case of Anthony Powell versus the state of Georgia, after Powell was charged with non-consensual sexual activity with a minor. The jury in his initial case acquitted him of the non-consensual portion of the complaint, but convicted him of consensual sodomy. This just doesn't seem right. After the appeal, the decision was made that Georgia's Supreme Court would strike down the sodomy statute on a vote of 6 to 1. Sucks that a case had to involve this piece of shit, but it did open doors. Alright, before I get into the major case that made the most waves in the change of sodomy laws in the United States, let's take a quick commercial break. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. 
You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. All right, I'm back. On September 17, 1998, John Geddes Lawrence Jr., a gay 55-year-old medical technologist, was hosting two gay friends, Tyron Garner and Robert Eubanks, at his apartment in Harris County, Texas. Lacking transportation home, the group had been drinking, Garner and Eubanks decided to stay the night in Lawrence's home. Eubanks had been drinking heavily and left outraged, thinking that Lawrence had been flirting with Garner. Eubanks called the cops and told them that a black male is going crazy with a gun at Lawrence's apartment. Fuck you, man. Then, of course, four officers arrive at the home with their weapons drawn. And when they came in, they reportedly saw Lawrence and Garner engaged in sexual activity. One officer claims to have seen them performing anal sex, the other claims to have seen some oral sex going on, and another two officers reported seeing no kind of sex whatsoever. The officer who thought he saw anal sex going on was told that under Texas's anti-sodomy statute, the homosexual conduct law made it a Class C misdemeanor if someone engages in deviant sexual intercourse with another individual of the same sex. This law was adopted in 1972 when the state revised its criminal code to end its prescription on heterosexual anal and oral sex. Joseph Quinn then charged Lawrence and Gardner with having deviant sex. The two men spent the night in jail and the next morning they both pled not guilty to the charges and they were released toward midnight. As for Eubanks, he was arrested for filing a false police report, which he pled no contest to was sentenced to 30 days and got out early. I'm just surprised nobody ended up dead. Lawrence and Gardner also decided to plead no contest and waived their right to a trial. This is where things get a little funky again. The Justice of the Peace found them guilty and imposed a $100 fine and the court costs of $41.25 to each of them. The defense attorneys realized that this fine was much lower than the minimum required to submit an appeal, which was obviously done on purpose. So the defense actually asked for a higher penalty. The judge obeyed and raised their fine to $125, making them eligible for an appeal. 
They first attempted to appeal to Harris County Criminal Court, where they were denied again, and the defendants once again pleaded no contest and were given yet another fine. Then, they went to a three-judge panel of the Texas 14th Court of Appeals, where the case was heard on November 3, 1999. On June 8, 2000, the decision was made in a two-to-one vote, which ruled that the Texas law was unconstitutional. Justices John S. Anderson and Paul Murphy found that the law violated the 1972 Equal Rights Amendment to the Texas Constitution, which bans discrimination based on sex, race, color, creed, or national origin. Unfortunately, then, the Court of Appeals reviewed the case in a hearing without any oral arguments and reversed the panel's decision upholding the law's constitutionality. Can we catch a break here, please? Because this is a roller coaster that I want to get off of. Lawrence and Garner's attorney then asked the Texas Court of Appeals, the highest appellate court in Texas for criminal matters, to review the case. They waited for a whole year to hear back. And in 2002, their request was denied. To seek further review, there was a petition created to be filed with the U.S. Supreme Court by Lawrence and Garner's attorney. They asked the court to consider, one, whether the petitioner's criminal convictions under the Texas Homosexual Conduct Law, which criminalized same-sex couples but not identical behavior by different-sex couples, violates the 14th Amendment guarantee of equal protection of the laws. Two, whether the petitioner's criminal convictions for adult consensual sexual intimacy in their home violate their vital interests in liberty and privacy protected by the due process of the 14th Amendment. Three, whether Bowers v. Hardwick should be overruled. The court agreed to hear the case in December of 2002. Information was submitted to the court by the American Bar Association, the American Psychological Society, the American Public Health Association, the Cato Institute, the Log Cabin Republicans, a group of history professors, and a group of religious denominations. Several of the sources, including the Liberty Council, depicted homosexuals as being self-destructive, disease-prone, and promiscuous. The states Alabama, South Carolina, and Utah advised the court that, unlike heterosexual sodomy, homosexual sodomy has severe physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual consequences. On June 26, 2003, Happy Pride, the Supreme Court issued a 6-3 decision in favor of Lawrence. Finally, five justices found that the law violated the Due Process Clause, while a sixth, Sandra Day O'Connor, held that it violated the Equal Protection Clause and that this decision struck down Texas's statute. George W. Bush, who was the governor of Texas at the time, opposed the repeal of the Texas sodomy provision, which he called a symbolic gesture of traditional values. In opposition, Professor Lawrence Tribe wrote that the decision in Lawrence may well be remembered as the Brown v. Board of Education for Gay and Lesbians in America. In the majority decision, Justice Kennedy wrote, The present care does not involve minors. It does not involve persons who might be injured or coerced or who are situated in relationships where consent might not be easily refused. This was to note that their decision is in no means to justify the abuse of a child, but many still took this to believe that gay couples should not be able to adopt children. It was concluded that Lawrence could not be used to establish the right for gay parents to adopt. 
In fact, until 2017, laws regarding adoption for LGBTQ couples varied from state to state. Some states granted full adoption rights to same-sex couples, other banned same-sex adoption, some only allowed one partner in the same-sex relationship to adopt the biological child of the other. There is still so much discrimination to this day regarding same-sex couples being able to even foster children. A few months after the final decision in Lawrence v. Texas, on November 18, 2003, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled that same-sex couples have the right to marry. Chief Justice Margaret Marshall quoted Lawrence in its second paragraph of the decision, stating, Our obligation is to define the liberty of all, not mandate our own moral code. Unfortunately, Lawrence was also assigned to other conservative states to further crack down on their anti-gay sodomy laws. This is because Lawrence only directly invalidates sodomy laws in the four states that have laws that only apply to gay people, which are Texas, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Kansas. After Roe v. Wade was overturned this past summer, Justice Clarence Thomas wrote an opinion stating that he called into question all substantive due process rulings, including Lawrence v. Texas. Just as there were states with trigger laws in place for when the ban on abortion was enacted, there are still many states banning sodomy, including oral and anal sex, that would be active if the Supreme Court undoes Lawrence. Currently, Texas's law is the most transparently homophobic, banning homosexual conduct. The law states that anyone can be charged with this crime if they engage in deviant sexual intercourse, which is defined as any contact between any parts of the genitals of one person and the mouth or anus of another person, or the penetration of the genitals or anus of another person with an object, with a member of the same sex. I'm going to apologize now. I'm about to say the word anus a lot, and I don't like it just as much as you don't like it. Here are a few of the states that still hold very homophobic sodomy laws and what they are. In Georgia, their anti-sodomy law defines the act as when a person performs or submits to any sexual act involving the sex organs of one person and the mouth or anus of another. These all sound so gross and not sexy at all. Kansas is one of three states in which their sodomy laws explicitly targets only same-sex acts. Criminal sodomy in Kansas is defined as bestiality, assaults on underage people, and sodomy between persons who are 16 or more years of age and members of the same sex. In Louisiana, they prohibit the unnatural carnal copulation by a human being with another of the same or opposite sex, not counting rape. But can we be a little bit more specific? The law continues saying, emission is not necessary. Ugh! And when committed by a human being with another, the use of the genital organ of one of the offenders of whatever sex is sufficient to constitute the crime. These are all so icky. Kentucky's law doesn't cover anything that's not already covered by their rape laws, except for when it explicitly says things like, he engages in deviant sexual intercourse so that a consensual act between men can be charged under this law as well as rape. They define deviate sexual intercourse as any act of sexual gratification involving the sex organs of one person and the other mouth or anus of another, or penetration of the anus of one person by a foreign object manipulated by another person. It's so gross. I'm such a child. Okay, Minnesota's is worded super weirdly, stating that their definition of sodomy is, quote, carnally knowing any person by the anus. (laughs) 
carnally knowing any person by the anus or by with the mouth. What the fuck? (laughs) The law also specifies that anyone who voluntarily engages or submits to an act of sodomy with another is committing a crime. Now, while some of these are worded really funny and it just seems so gross and not sexy at all, it's so disheartening to think that there are still so many laws on the books that could directly persecute someone for simply being attracted to the same sex that they were assigned. It wasn't until 2016 when Mississippi became the last state to overturn laws banning LGBTQ adoption. Same-sex couples couldn't nationally legally get married until 2015. These rights are so new and so flimsy that when I think about the state of our LGBTQ laws in this country today, I worry. I was interviewed yesterday by another feminist podcast, and they asked me how I thought the overturning of Roe would affect other laws in this country. And I think we've already seen the opposition focusing hard on the rights of the LGBTQ plus citizens in this country. With things like the Don't Say Gay bill, banning drag story hour, and drag in general, it feels a lot like we're very quickly moving backward. That's why I believe it's so important to remember that pride is really a protest, not just a celebration. The LGBTQIA community has yet to receive all of the rights given to straight, cisgender people. The fact that the community is already losing more and more of its rights as time goes on, even today, it worries me that a lot of these laws are worded so broadly, because the more broadly these laws are written, the more that people can interpret them differently and to make them fit into different situations. My concern is that gay couples, gay parents, Gay people in general who want to hold their partner's hand or kiss them in public or, you know, even go to like a gay strip show or drag show. Any of these things are going to become something that are dangerous for people to be able to partake in. And it just feels like so much of the progress is so quickly being reversed And another thing that was asked to me yesterday when I was doing this interview was like, well, what can we do to change things? And it's really easy to feel incredibly disheartened when we think about one person ourselves being responsible for any amount of change in this world or in this country. Just remember that as long as you're educating yourself, you're educating others when they ask or if they want to be educated, don't go preaching down the street to people and be a crazy person. But, you know, have open and honest conversations, be vulnerable, be authentic, tell people how you feel when it's safe to do so, because the more that we can keep these things within our general knowledge, the more people we will have behind us to be able to fight some of these laws. Unfortunately, we are in a situation in our country right now where the majority of our lawmakers are against us. They are against anything progressive. They have this whole woke war going on or what the fuck ever, but they are not going to be able to protect us from these people because they have the majority of the decision-making power at this moment. And the fact that we are going into a new election cycle very, very shortly is really terrifying to me because I think that Not just abortion rights and reproductive care will be discussed during these debates, but also a lot of fear-mongering around the LGBTQIA community. And the more that 
these hateful people have a platform to get up and debate or to, say, travel the country and give rallies, the more they are given a platform to get more and more people on their side through fear. Fear is such a driving force for so many people in our country because they do not understand a different way of life than their own. It is truly nothing more than based in fear and ignorance. And the more people can come out can be themselves, and can be open and authentic, the more we are able to stomp out so much of this hate. Our voices need to be louder than theirs. So even if our country is against us, our laws are against us, we can be there for each other and support each other through this time in order to make sure that we are holding on to as many rights as we possibly can that we deserve. I'm sure there are I'm sure there is so much of this history that I completely missed in this episode, but I'm really, really glad that I looked into it because it was something that I've had an interest in in a while, or at least an interest in learning more about. So I'm glad that I've actually kind of taken the last couple of weeks to do a lot of reading and compiling of some of the things that I've learned. I hope that you all learned a lot more about it today as well. If you have anything to add or anything that you want to say, feel free to email me or DM me and I would be glad to share your opinions on the show as well. Don't forget to send in your coming out stories, please. Like I said at the end of this episode, come out, come out wherever you are. The more people that are out and proud and protecting and celebrating with each other, the more that we can um, take over the world. That's the feminist gay agenda, right? So send me your stories through email at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or via Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. Don't forget to join the Angry Feminist Book Club on Patreon. And last but not least, if you want another way to support me and the show, I would greatly appreciate a five-star review plus a little sentence about why you enjoy the show on Apple Podcasts. I completely blacked out through that entire section because I said appreciate instead of appreciate and I got really fixated on that. Anyway, I want to say thank you so much for listening to another episode. I want to say particularly to all of my LGBTQIA plus listeners, happy pride. I love you so much. Thank you for being you. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving the show. That is all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.